It's time for Moment of Truth with David Moses. Element. Element. Element FM. And welcome to Moment of Truth. I'm your host, David Moses. You're listening to Element FM in Toronto and Ottawa. And of course, you may know this, but it's 106.5 in Toronto, 95.7 in Ottawa. And you can also listen on the iHeartRadio app. If you download the app, you can then take us with you anywhere you go. It's also a pleasure to have those people listening on other radio stations that now carry Moment of Truth. We welcome you to the show, as well as any listeners on your favorite podcast platform that are listening to our program as well. It's a pleasure to welcome back to the show. I say that with pleasure because I was reviewing the film. We're going to be talking about the meaning of empathy. And I hadn't realized that we had her on the show previously for another film. Jeez, this is when we could actually get together because uh, they came into our studio. So, you know, time has just slipped away from us. We no longer have a sense of time anymore. Everything seems so long ago when we could actually get together and go to work. So it's a pleasure to have with us here on the show Al Maya Tailfeathers, and she's a member of the Kainai First Nation, uh, as well as the Sami uh, uh, people from Norway. And that is how I remembered having her on the show before, because I, I know uh, that the, the Sami people and the Norway people, uh, there's an artist from Norway that I very much like, and uh, that's how I remember having that connection. So it's a pleasure to have Maya Tailfeathers. Thank you. It's it's really nice to be here. It's it is funny to think about um, actually being in a studio together. Uh, that seems like a lifetime ago. It, it really does. And am I saying that Elmaya? Is that correct way to say that? Uh, it's Elmaya. Elmaya. Okay. Uh, Which sounds people, like that's the. Uh, it sounds like that's the the Norway influence in that. Is it? Yeah. It's a it's a Sami name. Yeah. Um, most Sami people have two names as their first name mm. um and so mine is Ella Maya but um, my Blackfoot family has always just called me Maya mm. so okay. yeah so I, I go by many names <laughs> <laughs> well I'll call you Maya it's simpler and I won't mess it up as much so I'll just stick with Maya if that's okay with you sure well, it's a pleasure to have you back on the show, and um, and congratulations on your previous film, the film that we uh, had had you into the studio for, as you say, the lifetime ago. The Body Remembers When the World Broke Open. Yes, The Body Remembers When the World Broke Open, that's right. And here you are now back into the studio talking about this documentary film that you have made uh, entitled The Meaning of Empathy, and I'm going to let you pronounce the traditional name. Uh, it's Gimmabi Bitsen. It's a, a Blackfoot word that, um, yeah, that means to give empathy or, or to have compassion. Mm. Uh, tell me, first of all, how this all got started. I, I certainly imagine it may have started with a conversation with your mother, who plays a, a role in the film because she is a doctor. Yeah. Uh, so, so the film is a portrait of my community, my Blackfoot community, um, and our response to the opioid or the drug poisoning crisis. Um, and it's kind of a also a broader exploration of, of addiction or substance use disorder within my community. Um, and the film uh, started, uh, the, the, the seed for the, the film was planted uh, over six years ago. And I started working on the film five years ago. Um, so fentanyl hit our community uh, nearly seven years ago. And my mother is one of the few medical doctors on the reserve. Um, she was born and raised there and I was just hearing from her what she was witnessing every day and was also just 
um, witnessing all of the grief that was permeating the community because of the profound loss that we were experiencing due to uh, overdose death. Um, and so I was often seeing misrepresentations of my community in the news media in regards to this particular issue um, and just felt compelled to both document what was happening in the community and also provide a portrait of the community that I know and love um, that was often is often very different from what's portrayed in the news media. Can you give us a bit more detail in that in terms of what you were saying that misrepresentation of the community? Yeah, so the film, uh, like I said, is a portrait of the community. And so um, we see over 50 people from the community in the film. um, And that includes numerous frontline workers like paramedics and nurses, uh, doctors, um, people just working in in health and um, working towards change. Um, And we also see people who live with substance use disorder and people who are in recovery. Um, We visit a treatment center. We witness a a detox being opened on the reserve. Um, So what I was trying to show was all of the hard work that was happening from within the community, all of the community mobilization and organization that was happening. Um, And I just, I'm just so proud of my community and all of the people there. And I wanted audiences to be able to witness the strength and beauty of, of our community and also to understand how complicated the issue of addiction is within um, indigenous communities and, um, to understand how many systemic barriers our communities face, um, as well as to understand how the history of settler colonialism and ongoing racial inequity um, impacts the daily lives of Indigenous people and and impacts our relationship with, with addiction. And, and you certainly get a sense of that from the film because you talk about the history. You you um, you go right back into history. Actually, I think prior pre uh, pre uh, contact and talk about the community and then the the uh, impact of uh, a colonial society coming in and uh, and and how that affected the community. They, you t- then talk about the railway as it gets moved through in into across from west to east. Um, you also talk about the size of your community. I had no idea it was s- s- so big. It's massive. Yeah, it's so geographically, it's the largest reserve in Canada. Mm. Um, and we have about 14,000 members of our of our nation. Um, so it's it's huge. And it's it's in the foothills of the Rocky Mountains in southern Alberta. Mm-hmm. And to me, it's one of the most beautiful places on Earth. Yeah. Now, formerly known as is, is the Blood Reserve, is that what it was called? Yeah, that's. it's often in English referred to as the Blood Reserve. And many of us say we're from the Blood Reserve. <laughs> uh, and the Blackfoot word for our nation is Ghana, mm-hmm. uh, which means many chiefs. Mm-hmm. And uh, it's anglicized to Kainai. So a mm-hmm. lot of us say Kainai. So mm-hmm. it has numerous names, uh, but it's part of the Blackfoot Confederacy. Mm-hmm. You also said that you were trying to sort of counter the idea of the, the perspective that, that people see uh, from the news in, from your community. Can you elaborate a little bit more on that, on what you, you are seeing from the kind of portrayals that you were talking about that don't show the community that you know? Yeah, definitely. So um, 
often what we were seeing in the news media was a heavy focus on the tragedy and the trauma and the grief, which is all very real in our community. I mean, we've lost hundreds of people to overdose um, in the last seven years. I, I would I would wager to say it's probably over a thousand now. Um, so that that grief is very real. However, what was being portrayed in in the news media um, was really we we're missing this major part of the story, which is that there's all of this uh, community mobilizing and organizing that was happening and continues to happen. All of this hard work that was happening to to be able to find solutions, and our community is actually one of the uh, national leaders in terms of our response to the opioid crisis and the ways that we've implemented harm reduction. Um, We've set some precedents, um, which I'm really proud of. And so, yeah, the news media was often kind of coming in and and like you said, um, giving these sort of really quick snapshots that were often just like, um, to me, represented a a very distant lack of understanding of of who our people are and the work that was happening in the community and how much more complicated this story is um, than just, you know, stories of grief and loss. Yeah. And now the the opioid uh, epidemic, you say in the film that everyone in your your community has been affected by this, has lost someone. Yeah, absolutely. There isn't a single person who hasn't lost a loved one at this point. You were talking about fentanyl and how much more powerful this stuff is than uh, than I think um, morphine or, or some of the other drugs. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's a it's a synthetic opioid that um, is used in hospital settings generally um, in palliative care when people are uh, in severe pain, um, often passing away from things like cancer, um, and it's used in surgery. Uh, so, so it's existed in the medical field for a long time, but um, illicit fentanyl hit the illicit drug market probably seven or eight years ago um, when there were changes made to Oxycontin yeah. and the way that it was distributed and the way that it could be consumed. Um, so fentanyl became kind of the replacement for Oxycontin. Mm. And uh, now we see a lot of carfentanil, which is much stronger than fentanyl. Right. Um, and also uh, heroin is has made a, a return to the community during the pandemic because fentanyl is generally coming from China. And obviously the pandemic has made things more challenging in terms of importing illicit drugs. Okay, well, thank you for that. And thank you for setting up the story. Now, um, of course... We get into the story. We meet your mom, and because your mom is the, is the uh, the doctor that we get to see and follow her through this story, and and that takes us to not only within your own community, but it takes us to Vancouver, and it takes us to within the different areas within your community, the towns or villages. I don't know what you call them in your your area, um, but there's three specific uh, areas that we see within your community. Correct? Mm-hmm. Yeah, there's there's three. Uh there's three kind of like communities within the reserve mm. where uh, where there's housing and, and services mm. and, and businesses and things like that. Um, there are a number of other smaller communities. I guess you could call them like almost like towns, mm. but not quite. Mm. Um, but yeah, there's, there's three main communities on the reserve. And so each one of those areas, I guess, we, we see people, but we also meet different people working in different areas or, or the, the services that are provided within the community. 
Mm-hmm. Yeah. But then we go, we, go, we also go to Vancouver and that's when we get to see about the harm reduction, correct? Yeah. So um, I, I live here in, in Vancouver and uh, when I started the film, I knew very little about harm reduction. I think I kind of knew what a lot of people know in terms of just a basic understanding. Um, and in making this film, it was really important that I learn about harm reduction and do my research. And so I spent a lot of time learning from harm reduction advocates here in Vancouver's downtown East side, which is kind of uh, a global leader in terms of, of harm reduction policies and practices. Um, so for people who are listening, who might not know what harm reduction is, um, there are two kind of main forms of treating addiction. The first is the abstinence model, which is, uh, which is basically like 12 step programs, AANA. And it's rooted in the idea that people have to quit using drugs and alcohol, just quit cold turkey. And that's how they recover. Harm reduction is rooted in the idea that, um, recovery is more complicated than that. Um, and it, values someone's life over them being clean and sober. So it meets people where they're at. And that can mean um, distributing clean needles to prevent the spread of disease and and keep people as healthy as possible. Um, It can mean administering naloxone to reverse an overdose. It can mean, um, it can mean supervised consumption sites where people can go and use their illicit drug uh, under supervision so that their overdose can be reversed if they do overdose. Um, And it can also be like opioid agonist therapy, such as methadone or suboxone. So it can be a lot of things. And um, harm reduction is, it can be something like wearing a seatbelt when you drive, because we know that when you drive, there's a very good chance you can get in an accident. So wearing a seatbelt is is kind of like a, a form of harm reduction, if you think about it. Right. You're listening to Element FM in Toronto and Ottawa. That's 106.5 in Toronto, 95.7 in Ottawa. And this is Moment of Truth. I'm your host, David Moses. And we are talking with Maya Tailfeathers about her documentary film, The Meaning of Empathy. And it is a, a film that follows her into her community as well as taking her to other parts of the country like Vancouver. We were just talking about uh, Vancouver, and that's where she gets to see the harm harm reduction area uh, because of this opioid crisis that is in her community, the Kainai or Blood Reserve uh, community in Alberta. And her mother plays an important role in this film uh, as the doctor that we see following and uh, trying to gather information. And we see about the great efforts that are being made within the community and also other areas to help people that are struggling with an opioid uh, uh, addiction. And part of that is within her community. My, if I'm not mistaken, it looks like at one point in the film, we actually get to see you speaking with someone for the first time uh, who is 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 a user and you it looks like you actually uh suggest something to this person at the time and they actually take you up on it and we we get to follow their journey um going in to see uh, i believe it is your mother uh to to get him on a on a program yeah it's kind of a strange uh, moment that I think people who are familiar with documentary, especially documentary filmmakers, uh, don't really do, which is intervene or participate yeah. in this way. 
um, we're kind of expected to be silent observers mm-hmm. and have an objective lens. Um, but it's my community and it's my family and um, it's impossible to just extract myself from that and, mm-hmm. and not be part of the story when, when I am and when it impacts me. And so, um, yeah, there, there is a moment in the film where uh, one of the participants reveals that he's, been using fentanyl for a couple of years um and we talk about suboxone and he he uh not to give too much away but he makes the decision to to um start suboxone that day and so so we get to film his journey and um his experience with with suboxone Mm -hmm. now how long of of a of a time period over which did you film this uh, we filmed um, mostly over a three-year period, but uh, went back and did some filming uh, last summer. So technically four years. Right. And I wanted to establish that because you do get to see the, that time lapsing for people that either are trying to get into um, a, a program or uh, like this young man who gets into the program. And then we get to see some of that journey and we get to see uh, where they are at the end of the film as well. Yeah. I wanted people to walk away with a sense of hope Mm. um, and understanding that the solutions to this crisis are going to come from within the community and they are coming from within the community. Um, I wanted audiences to understand um, the systemic barriers that exist in terms of trying to find solutions. I don't think people necessarily understand the jurisdictional um, barriers that Indigenous people face mm. on reserve in regards mm. to health care mm-hmm. um, and, and other services. Um, mm. But ultimately, I want people to walk away with the understanding that drug and alcohol users deserve to be treated with dignity and, and respect. Right. Um, and that this is a, a public health crisis. It's not a criminal justice issue, mm. although um, it does bleed into the criminal justice system. Yeah. I want people to understand that um, that it is rooted in this historical trauma that, that we've all inherited, but also rooted in ongoing systemic injustice and inequity um, that Indigenous people are subjected to every day in this country. Um, So there's a lot that I wanted people to walk away with, but ultimately I want them to walk away with um, hope and, um, and to to feel the same pride that I do in my community and the same love that I have for my community. Mm. And you get to see that, that caring and that love uh, through the people that are doing the work as well. Uh, And both Indigenous and non-Indigenous, the people that work within those programs and in in those uh, buildings that that house these programs. Yeah, I think those people are our everyday (laughs) superheroes. The work that they're doing is incredible and many of them face burnout um, on a regular basis, but they just keep keep doing the work day in and day out. Mm. And there's a couple of other things that come to mind around that. One is we get to see more than just that one young man that we spoke about a little bit earlier. We get to see uh, some other people. There's a couple that we are seeing trying to get into the, to programs and where they're living out uh, in a tent. And, um, and, and we, we get to see and hear about their story. And I think that's something that was also close to you because you knew this, this woman's uh, brother who was, was killed. Yeah, so um, that's George and Leah, and uh, they have uh, an addiction 
an alcohol addiction mm. or a, a dependence on alcohol um, and they consume illicit alcohol. Um, so alcohol is not available for sale on the reserve or in the nearby town of Cardston. And so people who have an addiction to alcohol but can't afford to go and buy it legally somewhere um, resort to drinking illicit forms of alcohol. Um, and George and Leah have experienced a lot of of trauma um, in their lives and uh, their addiction is deeply connected to that trauma. Mm. Um, but there's so much more than that and there's so much more than their pain and their trauma. They're, they're wonderful people who I love and admire and respect and feel that um, what they experience on a daily basis is uh is incredible in the sense that I, I, I don't think that I would have the strength to get through what they get through every day. Mm -hmm. Um, and so I wanted audiences to be able to recognize that and to understand that they are more than their addiction and they are more than, uh, than their pain and their trauma. Um, and also that their voices matter and that we should, we should listen to them when it comes to trying to find solutions. We need to center the voices of people living with substance use disorder because they have the lived experience and they know what they need to get better. And they know what's missing within, within the services that are provided. The other thing, as you were talking there about the services and and about these the people that work in these these areas, it, it is the lack of of money that is needed to support and do the work that is necessary. Yeah, it's uh, it's very complicated because uh, in Canada, healthcare is generally under provincial jurisdiction. However, on reserve. Uh, everything is under federal jurisdiction because mm -hmm. of our relationship with the crown and the yeah. state and treaties and the Indian act. Um, and so the funding that is available for, for healthcare services is not uh, equitable with what is available off reserve for the general public under provincial jurisdiction. Um, and there's also uh, regulations around what can be offered on reserve. Um, and so generally there aren't detoxes, for instance, available on reserve or hospitals because those are always generally funded by the province. Mm. Um, and so our community managed to implement a detox on the reserve. I think there's maybe one or two other detoxes on reserve in Canada. However, the model that our community implemented is the first of its kind where it's uh, staffed and run by paramedics. And so the idea is that people who are patients at the detox that is considered their residence. And so it's almost like in-home care where the paramedics come to their residence. Uh, but it, but it's a detox facility where uh, everybody you know lives together in kind of like a healthcare type setting. Mm -hmm. um, and yeah, so I, I wanted audiences to kind of understand that it take, took so much work just to get that detox up and running and to recognize that it's such a vital service and a huge gap that was missing um, along the continuum of care. And, uh, and yeah, it's, it's, it's really hard for indigenous people to get equitable service um, in the same way, you know, that, that most Canadians sort of take for granted. Now um, in terms of people being able to, to see this film, um, what can you tell us about that? 
Uh, well, the film is premiering on April 29th at the Hot Docs International Film Festival, mm-hmm. which is based in Toronto, but it's all online this year. So it's yep. available across Canada. Tickets can be purchased at the box office online. Um, and it's also going to be playing at Doxa uh, Film Festival here in Vancouver. And again, Doxa is also all online this year. So yeah. tickets can be can be purchased online for that as well. Great. Now, um, the other thing I wanted to ask you about is is aside from the message you were trying to get out about your community and the good work that's going on there and and showing your community in in good light um what would you like this film to do beyond that are are you thinking of of hoping to get this shown perhaps to um uh government officials or or someone else in in higher up levels uh, to to see this yeah absolutely i think that harm reduction saves lives and it's evidence-based. It's, there's, there's proof that harm reduction saves lives. Um, and in the province of Alberta, for instance, the United Conservative Party has cut a lot of funding to harm reduction services. Um, in the last year alone, our community has lost over 90 people to overdose. And that was exacerbated both by the pandemic and also the closure of the supervised consumption site in the city of Lethbridge. Um, And so we are now witnessing deaths at rapid and, and, and really scary levels. um, And all of those deaths are preventable through harm reduction. And so I hope that legislators see this. I hope that people who can influence health policy, can see this film and, and that we can further the dialogue around how we treat people with substance use disorder um, and the ways in which harm reduction can be safely implemented. Right. Uh, the other thing I wanted to mention about the film is that we do see also workers, and I believe, it, it, I'm not sure if it's in Edmonton, uh, what city is, we see that we see the uh, the Bear Clan going out at night and and uh, treating and helping people on the street. Yeah, that's that's the Sage Clan in Sage the city Clan, of Lethbridge, right. um, and they are they were inspired by Winnipeg's Bear Clan. Yes, um, and they do this. They do similar uh, outreach work. So they they do outreach for especially Indigenous people uh, who are vulnerable in the city of Lethbridge. Um, they also do cleanup of drug paraphernalia, like dirty needles and pipes and things like that. Um, and they are on the front lines of the crisis in the city of Lethbridge and and see it every day. And one last thing, and that is, are you, are you at all encouraged at this point in time about how things are going within the community and the work that is going on? Are you seeing some results that look positive uh, coming out of this? Yeah, absolutely. The The detox that we, we see in the film, the Bringing the Spirit Home mm. detox, has seen so many success cases. So many people have turned their lives around, um, who have found employment and education, who are living um, healthy lifestyles now. Um, it, it's an incredible program and an incredible service. And so there is positive change on that front. But again, um, there are these consistent battles with with having to deal with um, really negative attitudes towards harm reduction, lack of government service and uh, support for what exists, mm-hmm. um, and then also just the pandemic. I mean, it's it's happening everywhere. The pandemic is exacerbating um, deaths due to overdose um, because everybody's uh, being forced to to use alone. Um, mm-hmm. You know, 
it's dangerous to be around other people to, you know, help prevent the spread of COVID. uh, And that is directly impacting the lives of of drug and alcohol users. Right. Uh, Maya, it's been a pleasure. Thanks again. That's Maya Tail Feathers. We've been talking to her about her film, The Meaning of Empathy. And Maya, I'm going to let you pronounce that once again in the, in the, in the, uh, the, the language. It's Gimabi uh, Bitsen, The Meaning of Empathy. Right. Thank you. You can get to see that on Hot Docs this year. And you can go online to get tickets for that. I believe you said it was premiering on the 29th. Yeah, people can start viewing the film on the 29th and they can watch it at any time throughout the duration of the festival. All right. So don't miss that. Go to Hot Docs. And if you don't see it with the Toronto Hot Docs, you can then see it uh, with the Vancouver one as well, as she was pointing out. The Meaning of Empathy. Check it out on Hot Docs. And we want to thank Maya for coming on the show and talking about her film today. Wish her all the best. And don't go away because we're going to be right back with more coming up right after this right here on Moment of Truth. Now back to Moment of Truth with David Moses. Element. Element. Element FM. Welcome back to Moment of Truth. I'm your host, David Moses. You're listening to Element FM in Toronto and Ottawa and also on the iHeartRadio app. If you download the app and uh, punch in our coordinates, you can take us with you anywhere you go. And that is 106.5 in Toronto, 95.7 in Ottawa. And it is a pleasure to welcome to the show two people here to discuss the film The Face of Anonymous. Gary Lang is the director. Ian Thornton is the author and co-producer. And it's a pleasure to have them on. Now, the film is having its world premiere at the Hot Docs Festival, which runs from Thursday, April 29th until May 9th. So you can find out more, pick up tickets, uh, view the film there. And it's also going to be broadcast on TVO on May 25th and streaming across Canada. And... I have to tell you that I was so enthralled with the film. It's such a fascinating, fascinating documentary. So it's a pleasure to have Gary Lang and Ian Thornton on the show. Guys, welcome. Thanks, Thanks David. David, nice, nice to meet you. You know, the story of this film is fascinating right from the get-go. I mean, the fact that you, you would meet Commander X walking, uh, Ian, walking down the street in Toronto, um, a homeless guy that you mentioned that you have written a book, and, and he says, oh, yeah, me too, or something like that. And the next thing you know, you guys have, have started a conversation, which leads you down this, this very strange path. Quicksand. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> <laughs> so please tell our listeners more about this story because it, it's just such a, a great story. Yeah, um, it was uh, it was the spring of 2016. It was May. I was walking down the street. I was pushing my two young children who were uh, two and three at the time in, in a double stroller down Queen Street and passing the Ukrainian church at Queen and Niagara. And there's a, there's a chap sitting on the step and he's reading a, a thick book. Uh, and uh, he has a cowboy hat out. He's panhandling. Mm. Uh, and I had recently had my first novel published, uh, and th- th- there seemed such a, a, a stark contrast with what one usually sees on Queen Street from panhandlers, which are cardboard signs asking for a couple of dollars. This guy was reading a thick tome. I felt a kindred ship mm. to him, and I dropped two do- dollars in there. Little did I know that that was going to lead to, to as I say, de- <laughs> sliding into the quicksand of the spy world, <laughs> cyber warlords, and, 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 and the like. And uh, we built up a friendship over a period of six weeks, 
And it wasn't until the day after the Brexit vote when he was very energised because uh, of the, the possible repercussions of the Brexit vote, which, of course, I was intrigued to find out why it, it would bother him so much. Right. And he said, oh, well, this is great news for, for Julian. And, of course, I wanted to know who Julian was. Right. Julian was Assange. Uh, uh, with whom he said he was in daily touch because mm. the warrant for Julian's arrest was an EU warrant and it would have to be torn up if the UK left the European Union. Uh, so I thought I had a, a Fisher King type character on my hands, which was just equally as intriguing as if this were the truth. But then he <laughs> pointed me towards a, a, a lengthy 25 page piece in the New Yorker by David Kushner from September 2014 called The Master Avenger. And he said it was about him. So I went home and, and sourced it and read it. And I thought, well, this is intriguing. It sounds like it could be him, but there are no pictures. Right. And when I cross-referenced the name in the article, up popped his mugshot from when he was arrested selling LSD to a to an FBI agent at a Grateful Dead gig. <laughs> and I realized that the man in the park sleeping under the tree was the man in the New Yorker article who brought down Mubarak and Ben Ali and started the Arab Spring. It's once in a lifetime stuff. <laughs> it sure is. Um, when you realized that this guy was the guy you met on the streets of Toronto, what, what went through your mind? I, 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 I was in shock. I went right. to a neighbor of mine in, in my loft building who has the. I have a background in international television, but this chap had actually worked at the real center of international television and film with Alliance Atlantis. And he's also a spy buff. So I went mm. to corroborate this with, with not corroborate, I went to, 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 to soundboard this with, right. with him uh, just to get a, a feeling of how weird is this? Right. Is this as weird as I think it is? <laughs> right. and, uh, and my friend wandered by the, the chap on the Ukrainian church steps and, uh, and, and had a look at him and came back and read the article and and uh, then I introduced him and we formed a, a, a lovely little triumvirate for, for a summer hmm. where we, we hung out and we started to, to film X with the idea of, uh, of, of taking this to a, to a film company. We took it to Vice, but that didn't work out. And before I knew it, I'd, I'd made some calls and I had Werner Herzog on board to, to direct. It, it just became more and more bizarre hmm. as, uh, as it went on. Sadly, we lost uh, Werner when he went off to... Uh, Moscow to make the Gorbachev mm. film with Andre Singer for, for Netflix. But that was uh, just a, a, a opening a path of fortune because then I got to meet Gary through a, a wonderful producer in, in Toronto called Ed Baraveld at Storyline Productions. And we took it to, to TVO and TVO were were gracious and supportive and, and have been nothing but wonderful. And, and yeah, we premiere on TVO next month. Wonderful. Thanks for sharing that. Now, of course, I, I would imagine... And maybe I'm wrong, but I would imagine that every time you would present this story to another person that is hearing it for the first time, their reaction is probably pretty much the same. Uh, Gary, is that fair to say? Is that how you receive this? Uh, yes, it's fair to say. I mean, when <laughs> Ian came to me, I knew um, oh, I'd heard of X. I mm-hmm. worked at Vice at the time. Mm-hmm. I didn't see the pitch for this project, but I knew, I, I'd heard of X through other travels, through the world of what is loosely called cyber hmm. and uh x is um i knew that x had been in canada mm-hmm. i 
knew that. I didn't know the details. So when Ian presented it, it wasn't that wasn't a total shock. The thing that really helped me push it over the line was X has published a couple of books and Ian handed me those. I'd never seen them before. They're not obscure, but mm-hmm. I didn't know they existed. Mm-hmm. And they named names and they they were written like scenes mm-hmm. and they uh, took me inside a world that I thought was only, you know, abstract. So uh, this is a, a double-edged sword, your question. Was it true? Mm-hmm. What I read in these books? I didn't know. Right. I didn't know. The simple fact is um, the, the, the information that was in those books was all true. Mm-hmm. And here was a character who was portraying himself as a major player on, on the field when these very important historical events were going down in which I already knew that anonymous had played a role. So the next step for me, it wasn't that I disbelieved Ian or disbelieved X. It's just anyone will tell you now, including Ian, the guy tells tall tales, right? You know, so it is sort of sorting out the, the, the weeds, uh, getting through the weeds rather to figure out what is actually the truth of his story. And, you know, in some, there's more truth than fiction. May I just add a caveat there, of please? Of course, yeah. Um, and, uh, the, the thing about the, the tall tales, I think I, I know how to to separate his tall tales from uh, uh, f- from accuracies. And it seems that when he's talking in the past tense, everything is accurate. His tall tale, tales seem to come in in his dreams for the future and how mm. things might map out and what he's going to do. Um, and I think you can you can pass them pretty much along those lines. Everything he told me about the past could be corroborated and it's, and seemed really solid. Truth and fiction and a character. This man, Commander X, certainly is a character. There's no question about that. And and a fascinating character. I mean, he he really translates well into the film. It's worth saying, I mean, the big, the big, uh, you know, Ian had known him for some time and I just got on a plane cold and met him. I'd only spoken to him once at length on, mm-hmm. on a secure, uh, in a secure medium. Um, because at the time, just to remind uh, people when they actually see the film, X did not have, he had no um, status anywhere in the world. He was mm-hmm. on the run from the U.S. Mm-hmm. He was uh, had entered Canada illegally, and now he was in Mexico illegally. So f- for me to see him alone put him at risk more than anything else mm-hmm. to be rearrested. So uh, when I went, therefore, to see him, I was at a dead stop, and getting to know him, because he is an interesting character, was uh, a trial by fire. We went into a safe house uh, that he had sort of created for us. No technology allowed, no tracking from Canada or the U.S. or anything at all. He insisted on direct flights. And uh, and thankfully, because we all lived under the same roof, we just stayed, my crew and me and him, and shot for a long time until we had the film. But all that was, you know, growing trust and also gaining access to this unique mind. Uh, he's a very challenging person, as you'll see when you see the film. Yeah, for sure. But it is just a wonderful, fascinating story. A very colorful man, Commander X, uh, and and one that doesn't uh, hold back uh, in any way in terms of the, his colorful language that he uses as well. <laughs> oh. 
even in the edit suite, you still try to cut around it and it's impossible. <laughs> he has very colorful language. That's one yes. way of putting it. Yeah, that's for sure. Um, now, you said that you were sort of familiar with him, Gary, uh, a little bit about as Commander X. So, um, would you mind explaining for people that have no idea, which I had no idea about this guy prior to seeing the film, um, the kind of things that this guy did? Uh, the, the, the short list is kind of astounding. Uh, X was on the ground through um, what, what is now loosely called the Arab Spring. And just so that everyone fully understands, it's, it's pretty much hard. History will, will acknowledge it eventually. Arab Spring was orchestrated and run by Anonymous. Uh, they, there was outreach from that part of the world to Anonymous to help them. And Anonymous turned a corner in Tunisia first and Egypt next that uh, the CIA could have only dreamed of mm. uh, in terms of taking down dictatorships yeah. and, um, and doing something for freedom of expression vis-a-vis the Internet. Right. The governments, of course, kept trying to turn off the Internet and Anonymous helped these people, people turn it back on. They knew how. And they made sure that people could talk. It's very simple stuff, it seems now, but yeah. it's so critical when you're sort of in the middle of what's essentially a, a lockdown cyber war zone where you don't know what's happening in the next town. And the government's telling you, oh, they've already given up. Well, they haven't. Mm-hmm. They're fighting, too. And that's what Anonymous made sure people could know and see so that the uprising was a success. So that uh, is, X was on the ground for all of that, literally pushing buttons and connecting people and making sure that that information stayed alive and the Internet stayed on. Uh, critically, as we move forward through time, X and Anonymous have a place in Black Lives Matter, uh, a very large one that has never really fully been acknowledged. They also have a huge place in Occupy which I think history will also eventually show us that Occupy is an anonymous run op. Mm. Not the people on the ground, but the way it was organized. We're all sitting here going, how is this happening? All these cities all over the places because these guys know how to organize on the internet. Right. And they helped other people do it. They still do. Anonymous is, uh, uh, doesn't exist as we knew it then, but uh, people like X and others, um, from the organization continue to help people organize because it's critical in this age more than ever. We can't all walk around with a placard on the street, but we can easily sit at home and um, be activists in areas that we're passionate about. And Anonymous plays a trail. Uh, the technology they used and the te- techniques they used um, are now in every aspect of our lives. So uh, the X was there for all of that, and um, and I handed to him. Uh, a lot of other people would have given up, but he's a persistent dude. There were uh, a couple of other great. Well, his greatest yeah, hits are really outlined in his second book, Dark Ops, where he uh, he talks about his attacks on on Israel, on the Vatican, on Turkey, uh, uh, and they range from the micro to the macro. That he was behind the the hacking of the the Steubenville rape case, which was a Friday Night Lights gang rape, where the the principals and the the police were all uh, about covering up what the, this football team had done to this poor young girl. And, uh, and the, the hacker who, Derek Lossiter, the hacker who ended up exposing the whole town uh, who, who were covering up this, this gang rape, the hacker got more jail time 
than the gang rapist. So so X was was behind exposing that as well. He took mm-hmm. that on a, as a core celebre. But then th- there are there are larger hacks as well, uh, which are which are history changing. Mm-hmm. Uh, he hacked the the twenty twelve U.S. election. He and a a, a gang of, of five of them had, had planned to go in and, and completely torch and delegitimize the twenty twelve election with uh, with, and, and taking forensics to show that nobody knew who, who'd won. But when they were in there, they found two GOP hackers who were based in the in the basement of the GOP headquarters in Cleveland, Ohio, which was a swing state that year. And uh, and they chased them out. They, they busted them and chased them out. Now, X is a, is a full-on anarchist, torched the whole thing, but they, they went along a democratic vote as to what they should do. Five of them voted to kick the GOP hackers out. X voted to carry on torching it, but he, he took the word of the, the democratic vote and they, they chased them out. Thus saving the election for Obama. There was a, a great moment when Karl Rove was on Fox News claiming that the, the GOP were going to take uh, uh, Ohio and he gets a word in his ear and he, and he flushes and, and has a hissy fit because uh, he, he, he's been told that his guys have, uh, have, have been given the boot by Anonymous. Hmm. Wow. Yeah, it's all fascinating stuff and I can't help but as we go through the film, much like the two of you, when you first heard the story and wondering if you're being duped by this guy, I think the audience somewhat feels that as well because you're going is this is this for real is, is this guy real well the, the, there, there is a moment in the film when barrett questions something that x had said but we, we have to remember that x has smoked a lot of weed and taken a lot of acid as well so. <laughs> and you know I, I can't help but also as we as you were talking and explaining more about him i i can't help but think how he's like so unassuming that it's what makes him so wonderful I'm, well, I'm glad you feel 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 uh, the, the whole idea with the, the film in the end is is not uh, not for me to express my point of view on X or Ian to express his and, and it's exactly that. There's a lot to take away from this guy. I've I've had people react who just adore him hmm. for his persistence, focus, and you know he will say every time you know do the right thing. He does what he thinks is the right thing. Mm-hmm. Not everyone needs to agree with them, but he is uh, on a path and that path has never deviated. So uh, there's something admirable in that. Yeah. I've talked to other people who um, love them when yeah. they watch it yeah. because of the bravado, because of this, you know, it's, that's good. It's good. He doesn't care what people think of him. He only cares about the cause. Right. And I'm very pleased that he's not a cookie cutter figure yeah. that we would expect to see um, as a, as a typical hacker or a typical villain or a typical hero. He's a very interesting person, and yeah. that's the objective of the film, is to show all sides. Yeah, and I think you guys have, have actually done a great job, and, and it, couldn't have obviously done it without him. He plays a huge role in this entire story, and, and a fascinating one. You're listening to Element FM in Toronto and Ottawa, 106.5 in Toronto, 95.7 in Ottawa, and of course, uh, you might also be listening on your favorite podcast platform, and we welcome you if you are. My guests here on the show are Gary Lang, the director of The Face of Anonymous, 
guest as well as Ian Thornton, and he is the author and co-producer, and he is the man who first met Commander X, who is the, the main character in this documentary, The Face of Anonymous, that we are talking about. It's going to have its uh, world premiere at uh, at Hot Docs, and it's going to be uh, also broadcast on TVO on May 25th and streaming across Canada as well. So you can go to Hot Docs to find out more, and I highly recommend you will not be disappointed in watching this fascinating documentary. It's engaging, it's entertaining, it's somewhat uh, funny at times, but it's fascinating and it keeps you on the edge of your seat because you really, you really wonder what is going to come out of Commander X's mouth next. And I don't necessarily mean the profanity, although there's a lot of that. Um, but just because of his thinking, you know, I, uh, Ian and Gary, the, the, the fact that we get to see Commander X and his interest and how he first got interested because his interest in computers, building computers. And and then, of course, that leading into the end, his, his knowledge around the subject that he is focusing on is vast. And, and it's it's wonderful to see how that all came about. Yeah. Ian, you want to do you want to speak? Yeah, to that? Um, it was um, uh, he, he saw an ad in the back of uh, a, a comic and asked his grandmother for the, the, the few dollars. It, it would take to purchase this thing and uh, and his grandmother asked him what does this thing do and he said well it, it helps it will help you balance your checkbook and you can play <laughs> games and she said well I, I, I'll get your calculator for, for, for balancing the checkbook and there's outside for playing games and and he persisted and persisted and she she relented and he got his toy it took a year to build and uh, and that was uh, the, the genesis. I, I think it's worth saying, David, I think it comes through in the film that where this started, which Ian just outlined, is he had a technological aptitude yep. uh, and he became an activist. Yep. Somewhere in the middle, he went to prison and he sort of told us, I, I don't know if it truly comes through in the film, but it's an interesting story. When he came out of prison seven and a half years later, there's this thing called Alta Vista, whatever, early search engines, and it blew his mind because he already knew a lot about computers and he knew yep. a lot about activism. And what does come through in the film is him saying, now I knew I didn't have to carry a placard. Mm. I could do from mm-hmm. home in mm-hmm. a day what used to take me 10 years. Yeah, yeah. And that's why he became this ultimate um, weapon in the world of Anonymous, because they aren't activists. They're just kind of goofing around, those guys. Like, I know a lot of them, and they're, most of them are just sort of like pranksters. They have agendas and stuff. But he knew about activism. He'd been, you know... Uh, gassed by cops and thrown in jail. Yeah. He knew what it felt like. Right. So he really knew how to work the front lines, and that was why he was an asset. Speak- uh, plus, as you mentioned, from the beginning, he's no technological genius, but he does have an aptitude. He's got an aptitude for tech. He understood what it would do before I'd venture to say some of the people, other people in Anonymous did because he saw where it was going to land, which is where we are today. Gary, was this was this a fairly easy film to direct in terms of did it write itself in in many ways not at all okay <laughs> it was a complete rewrite okay for the premise of the the premise of every way he's unpredictable and so mm. was the story mm. the premise of the film that i had in mind was does the punishment fit the crime ah, that's right. where it's always been an interest of mine in mm. the space of cyber mm-hmm. uh, a number of anonymous activists have done serious time including a couple of them that are in the right. film um, 
some have been sentenced to what is verging on life sentences for yes. what is essentially pranks. Yes. It never really made any sense to me. And I already mentioned that, you know, gang rapists got less sentence, less sentence time, prison time than, than the hacktivist who broke it. Hmm. So that's where I started. Hmm. That's not what this film's about right. uh, at all. What the film's about is um, two things. One is about showing, I hope, how all of us have to be more situationally aware. Mm-hmm. Uh, we already know that when a policeman comes to your door and wants to come in, you ask for a warrant. We have to treat our uh, digital world the same. Right. Uh, X is a good example of showing us why for causes that are both um, um heroic and nefarious depending on your point of view right so the film ends up being more about that than it does where it started it was being rewritten all the time mm. uh uh rewritten in the cutting room mm. and my editor rob ruzik had a different point of view than i did right so you know part of that also was the great thing about making films is a bunch of storytellers uh sort of pick out what they think um, is most interesting or most important to tell X's story in this mm-hmm. case. Mm-hmm. You know, when I got, I will say, when I got to meet David Kushner, who wrote the original New Yorker, mm. it, it really celebrated, the article really celebrated X and it, it um, polarized anonymous. They didn't like the fact that he was getting right. all this attention. Right. So I met David uh, towards the end of our shoot and interviewed him and said, you know, it's been oh, seven years since the article. I'm like, do you think you made a mistake, you know, like picking this guy? He said, if I were to do it all again, I'd pick it again. Hmm. Because here you had an American activist who grew up in a time before the Internet, discovered the Internet and brought it into his world. It's yeah. the best story of all. Right. And that's where we landed. Right. It really is where we landed. Mm. Uh, to, it's, it's, it's almost like a chapter of American activism through the lens of this one man. Mm-hmm. Right. And it takes it brings us right up to the present day. Yeah, it sure does. Uh, Ian, uh, last word to you. I'm just wondering if you had not struck up a conversation with uh, Commander X, um, this story would never have been told. Absolutely, um, and uh, um, it was just the beautiful randomness of life. Uh, and there at Shin Height is is absolute gold. Yeah, I just had my first novel published. I was working on a on a second one, uh, which is an ironic point because my second one was about Alistair Crowley, who was uh, the charismatic head of a of a secret society, heavy drug use, uh, um, uh, unpopular to, to to the masses, but fighting righteous causes. The parallels were were uncanny, but that's what happens when. When one is uh, allowed to, to switch off from from the, the modern world and and not be running for buses and streetcars, but to, to be lazy and nosy. Um, so uh, so yeah, I thank my good fortune for that. It's uh, yeah, it's it, it will always remain a, a a thing of beauty in my my mind to think of of, of having dis- discovered him. Mm-hmm. You know, and both you guys have touched on things about him that that are both fascinating and you're for him, but you're against him at the same time. You know, that when you see him and and the things that he's doing and and what he's accomplishing and and what he has done. And then you see this this story unfold at the end where actually he ends up getting, if I can give give this part away, because I think the story is greater than this, um, is that he he gets he wins political asylum in Mexico. And it's 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 like, wow. This guy's story just doesn't stop. 
<laughs> well, yeah, and I think the final thing that I'd like to add is that the, there is one element of wonder which oh, will always make me smile, even if I live to be 200 years old. And that is when, when he was bringing down Ben Ali in Tunisia and, and Mubarak in, in Egypt. These were, these were murderers in gold palaces. An ex was sleeping under a tree in yeah. Trinity Bellwoods yeah. Park and asking for change right. so he could get warm. Yeah. Uh, and you fast forward to to Ben Ali dying in exile in Saudi Arabia, being buried in, in Saudi soil, and Mubarak dying in prison in, in Egypt. And at that moment, ex is swinging in a hammock in Mexico, sipping a margarita <laughs> with two street dogs that he's, he's taken on. It's, it's just lovely. Yeah, it sure is. There's no question about that. Ian, you have a book coming out, My Year of Living Anonymously, is that correct? Uh, yes, yes. I'm, I'm talking to a publisher about it at the moment and, and hoping to tie that up very soon. Uh, but uh, yeah, the, uh, the the release date has not been confirmed okay. as of right. yet. And, and Gary, has X seen this film? Yes, he has. Uh, we held back for a number of reasons, um, not because uh, any fear of his concern for it. He's very, as I say, he doesn't really care what I think or what the film mm. thinks. He does want the story mm. out to answer one of your earlier mm-hmm. questions his story out he's seen the film and um my overall sense is he likes it his critics are in the film there are people from in in the and they are local uh but in in the end um it's not only just their point of view they're the first to admit that he was a uh, absolutely essential ally in what it is they were trying to accomplish so they're like they may not like him but he doesn't care whether they like him they know he did the job And they know that he was steadfast, focused, and in some ways more focused than they were. I sort of answered your question, and uh, he he has seen the film, and he hasn't uh, hacked my computer and destroyed my life yet. <laughs> Gentlemen, we'll have to le- we'll have to leave it there. But thank you so much for taking the time to join us on the show and tell us about this fascinating film that you guys have put together. And thank you so much for doing so. I encourage everyone to go and see it at Hot Docs and also on TVO May twenty fifth. You can see it at the Face of Anonymous. Gary Lang is the director. Ian Thornton is the author and co-producer. It's been my pleasure to have them both on the show. Thank you, guys, and take care. Thank you, David. All right. Pleasure is ours. Thank you, Take care. And that is our show for today. Thank you for listening to Moment of Truth, and we will see you again tomorrow. I'm your host, David Moses. This has been Moment of Truth with David Moses. Element. Element. Element FM.